This evening, I'd like us to consider the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. And before we turn there, of course, a lot has transpired in chapter 1. So just sort of putting our text in its larger context, you recall that by this time, the angel Gabriel has appeared, sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin named Mary, betrothed to a man named Joseph. Greetings, says the angel. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And of course, Mary is startled and confused and even troubled. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. How will this be, since I am a virgin? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, says Mary. Let it be done according to your word. What living faith, confidence in the Word of the Lord. So we come now to the nativity of Jesus, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Nativity refers to a person's birth, the circumstances associated with a person's birth. Perhaps you remember a Christmas play. I remember the day I played Joseph up front in the Christmas play. And you know, a lot can go wrong when kids like me get together just to be silent and say nothing while my counterparts are playing their parts. And well, you just never know what might go wrong. But not this nativity. This is the original, just right nativity. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in 
the end. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us. The light shines into the darkness, says the Apostle John, and the darkness did not overcome it. Father, we thank You for Your Word that gives light and heat, and we pray that Your Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Your glory, and in seeing the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ, we might love Him, that we might be resolved to follow Him and serve Him all of our days. Would you meet us in this text by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is the just right nativity for three reasons. First of all, because your Savior comes at just the right time, verses 1 through 3. And secondly, because your Savior comes to just the right place, verses 4 and 5. And finally, it's the just right nativity because your Savior comes in just the right way, verses 6 and 7. Let's consider these in turn. First of all, your Savior comes at just the right time. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Consider first with me this would-be Lord named Caesar Augustus. Who was he? Well, by birth, his name was Gaius Octavius. He was the great nephew, the adopted son, and the designated heir of Julius Caesar, leader of the Roman Republic. He was politically shrewd. He was militarily strong. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated, remember, by Cassius and Brutus. A couple of years later, Octavius joins forces with Mark Antony to punish and defeat Cassius and Brutus. 31 BC, Octavius defeats Antony and Cleopatra in the Battle of Actium. And so he puts an end to all of the civil wars. He overpowers his rivals. He turns the republic into an empire and he reigns as emperor for 44 years. He claimed to bring justice and peace to all the world. He styled himself as the Son of a God. He was revered as one through whom divine powers worked. He received such titles as Savior, Lord. In 27 BC, the Roman Senate gave him the title Augustus, which means exalted or majestic, suggesting that he just might have divine qualities, so they thought. 
An inscription was found by archaeologists. It reads like this, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, commander of land and sea, the benefactor and the savior of the world. But he's only a would-be lord. Consider second, his must-do word. Caesar Augustus asserts his sovereignty. The text says that he issues a decree that all the world should be registered. Verse 1, a census, a means by which the name was recorded, your occupation was recorded, your property was entered into the public register for the purpose of assessing taxes. It was ordered globally. It was administered locally by Quirinius, the governor of Syria, a Roman province which included the land of Palestine. And so the text says that all went to be registered, each to his own town. Perhaps it was the convention of the times, or perhaps it was an accommodation to the Jews. But I want you to notice the emphasis. Luke employs the term register four times throughout the text. And why is that significant? Because the census was a penetrating symbol of Roman lordship, an unwelcome intrusion by an alien leader into your life, a painful reminder of having to pay allegiance because you had been conquered. But the text teaches us that your Savior comes at just the right time. On the one hand, just the right time, because in those days, there was an outward peace that allowed for the spread of Christianity. But on the other hand, it was just the right time, because in those days, there was an alien domination from which all the world needed salvation. Have you ever sensed yourself to be enslaved to an alien power, forced to carry out the marching orders of an iron-fisted Lord? Well, certainly not Caesar Augustus, but can you identify with what the Apostle Paul writes? In Romans chapter 7, when he says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do is what I keep doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And you begin to see that Israel's subjection to the political rule of Caesar is actually pointing beyond itself to a much deeper problem. The spiritual tyranny of sin living in me and sin living in you. And it's not merely a behavioral problem. Sin is a gravity of deceitful desires that pulls you down. Sin living in me, sin living in you is the ultimate addiction. Sin living in me, sin living in you is a belly with a craving that will not take no for an answer. Indwelling sin is a lust, as my African-American brother preacher would say, a lust that seeks you, that finds you, that blinds you, and binds you, and grinds you to a pulp. Sin living in us is a hijacker seated in row 17 that gets up and storms the cockpit of your life and takes control of the wheel and brings wreckage. This is the doctrine of sin living in us. And the tyranny of Caesar Augustus points well beyond itself to the deeper problem. What craving this Christmas has you in its grip? Is it to pay someone back? Is it to prove yourself right? Do you love to show yourself better than the other person? Do you have a craving to control your world and bend other people to your will? Just this past week, I found myself journaling recognizing that I had this inordinate desire to be understood. Now, that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing to be understood until it becomes a ruling desire. A good desire elevated to an ultimate desire becomes a bad God. It's a deceitful desire. It's what the Bible calls a ruling desire. And the desires of the flesh produce the works of the flesh. And if we sow to the flesh, we reap from the flesh a harvest of sorrow upon sorrow. Do you see... Israel's subjection to the political rule of Caesar points beyond itself 
to the deeper spiritual tyranny of sin living in us. But what does God do for you? He comes after you. He moves toward you at just the right time to set you free. This is why the angel will soon proclaim good news of great joy, a Savior has been born for you. Your Savior comes at just the right time. Secondly, your Savior comes to just the right place. Verses 4 and 5. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, it would seem that Augustus is sovereign over the world and that he issues a decree and all follow. But on closer inspection, we now see, we now learn a still greater king is at work. From all of the people to a young couple, the camera zooms very close to Joseph and Mary. And if you watch them closely, you see that they are walking to Bethlehem in fulfillment of the Scriptures. 700 years earlier, Micah's prophecy, chapter 5, verse 2. The context is King Sennacherib of Assyria has laid siege to Jerusalem. And the prophet Micah exhorts the faithful among God's people to galvanize themselves as a troop. And Micah gives the people bright hope to fight against insurmountable odds by predicting the coming of the Messiah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah 5, verse 2. Now notice, this would not be the first time that God would raise up a ruler over Israel. Bethlehem was the birthplace of David. And from Bethlehem, God raised up David to deliver Israel from Goliath. God chose David as king and promised David a kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom forever. But history unfolds, and we watch David's descendants, one after another, fail miserably as kings. And the kingdom 
would eventually divide and crumble. And so, Micah's prophecy comes as a ray of hope. Bethlehem signals a new start in the house of David. Although David's house had failed, God's covenant with David would never fail. God would fulfill His promise by raising up a new David in the last days from that little bitty town of Bethlehem. And now, 700 years later, God's plan unfolding right according to schedule. Joseph takes Mary to the city of David, the text says, because he was of the house and line of David. David, David, David. Luke keeps repeating David. Why? to show God's promise to David is reaching its fulfillment. The baby to be born of Mary will be the great, unfailing son of David, the promised king. Now, maybe you thought that it was the decree of Augustus in Rome that led Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Or maybe you were thinking it must have been the gossip from the folks in Nazareth that led Joseph and Mary to get out of town and go to Bethlehem. But the text tells us, think again. It was the overruling providence of God that led Joseph and Mary to just the right place. Do you see what God is doing? He's working for the sake of your joy. He's working for your salvation. He's turning the hearts of the kings to do His will. He's working through all kinds of means to bring to fulfillment His saving purpose for you. And if God so worked in history to bring Jesus to the right place, can you trust Him to bring you in your particular time in history to just the right place. Earlier this week, one of you reached out to me. And you communicated, my life is in an absolute mess. And my heart leapt for compassion. Because I was sitting there thinking, you are exactly the person that God is seeking and moving toward. There is such hope for you. Take comfort in God's overruling providence because God is on the move to deliver you from just a big mess to just the right place, a much better place through Jesus. It's the just right nativity. Your Savior 
comes at just the right time. Your Savior comes to just the right place. And thirdly, your Savior comes in just the right way. Verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I read that phrase, the time came. (laughs) And mothers, fathers, maybe that little phrase just brings to mind all kinds of memories so vivid, then the time came. And for Mary, it was time for her to give birth, the text says, to her firstborn son. In the Old Testament, the firstborn was entitled to inherit special rights and privileges. And that begs the question, what rights and privileges might Jesus inherit? Well, as we've seen, God promises to the line of David, and Joseph was of the house of David. So these promises will pass on to Jesus. He's the royal descendant of David. He's the newborn king. He will inherit God's promised, never-ending kingdom. But where I want you to focus is on how the newborn king comes. Humiliation. Bethlehem was already a hint of this humble way of coming. It signals Messiah's lowliness. In great contrast to the proud and powerful clans of Judah, little bitty Bethlehem was so insignificant, so despised, too weak to mention, barely had one traffic light running through downtown. Bethlehem's weakness and lowliness is God's way of shaming the strong and the proud. Bethlehem's lowliness will magnify Messiah's greatness. God exalts lowly Bethlehem with her amazing ruler. And now, this humble way of coming finds even greater expression in these verses. Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths, wrapped the baby's arms and legs with strips of long cloth so the limbs would grow straight, was the thinking then. And Mary laid him in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. He's not born under the roof of his mother's house, but in a very strange place. He's laid not carefully in a prepared cradle, but in a feeding trough for animals. He's the Messiah in the manger, which is the ultimate oxymoron, isn't it? Parents, with me, contrast this experience with your experience. I remember when my son Evan was in high school, he went to a 
high school dance in a barn. I thought, well, that's pretty creative. That's pretty cool. I can see that. But can you imagine your child being born in a stable and being placed in a feeding trough? Never. When we were anticipating our firstborn, we pulled out all the stops. Aunt Jackie, the artist in the family, she came up with this, came into town and drew this, this, this life-size Winnie the Pooh mural in baby blue in our baby's bedroom. And I, 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 I went broke buying the, the cradle and... and and it was the latest design, and, and I got it just right. And then I, I realized in the very last step, dads, can you imagine this? You, you, you put the piece in the wrong place, and so you had to take the whole thing apart and start all over again. But I was willing to do it. I worked hard to put it together because... We want to do it in the right way. Why this place for animals? Verse 7. Because there was no place for them in the end. I'm sorry, I can't resist. I was driving my younger son Nathan from Vermont back to North Carolina one night, and it was about midnight, and we were approaching Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And, of course, it's, it's dark, and I shouldn't be trying to do too much on my phone. And so I, I called Cindy. We're about 20 miles outside of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I asked Cindy, could you, could you please call the Holiday Inn and book a room for us in advance? And so she went to work and, and sought to find a room at the Holiday Inn. And she calls me back and says, I'm so sorry there's no room at the Holiday Inn. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. Are you telling me there's no room? in the inn, in Bethlehem? And she said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. (laughs) This term translated in can have multiple meanings, a private home, a guest room. We can't know for sure, but what we can know for sure is that at all points to poverty, obscurity, even rejection. But wait a minute. Surely the God who orchestrated circumstances so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Scripture, surely this God can also orchestrate circumstances so that Jesus would be born in a much more comfortable and dignified place. Of course He can So why doesn't He? Why does God see to it that the Messiah is born in a stable? Because stables are dirty places. Stables are smelly places. Stables are the lowliest places. Can I ask you this? Does not my pride and yours. Does not my self-righteousness 
and yours. Does not my smug attitude and yours stink to high heavens? Don't you just hate it? Don't you just grieve it? But see the hope. Your Savior comes to identify with the dirtiest, with the lowest, with the smelliest, all with a view toward bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He does not leave you there. He brings you into union with Himself. He stoops so low in order to raise you so high. Do you see it? Your Savior comes at just the right time. The time of domination. Your Savior comes to just the right place. The place of expectation. Your Savior comes in just the right way. The way of humiliation. This is what Luke is saying, but don't miss what Luke is doing with what he is saying. Look at the contrast that Luke is drawing. On the one hand, Caesar Augustus, the human, Savior of the world, so they thought, strong and wealthy. But on the other hand, the baby Jesus, the divine Savior of the world, weak and poor, and in which Savior will you put your trust? I believe it was commentator N.T. Wright who writes, The coming of King Jesus is calling into question the worldwide peace that Caesar Augustus brings. The kingdom of God is confronting and upending the kingdoms of this world. History bears witness Human ways to greatness lead finally to humiliation, but God's way of humiliation leads ultimately to the exaltation of the man for others, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, one last look at the humiliation of Jesus at His birth. It's an allusion to the humiliation of Jesus at His death. At the birth of Jesus, Mary wrapped Him in swaddling cloths and laid Him in a manger. But at the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea took the body down and wrapped Him in a linen cloth and laid Him in a tomb. And tonight we, we celebrate this unbelievable humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to the Lord's Supper, I'd like to invite the elders who will be assisting me as we prepare.
And as they come, I want to remind us all that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to be observed until He returns. It's the sacrament that is to be observed by God's people, to signify His death, to seal His benefits of bringing us into union and communion with Him. It's a sacrament that as we feed upon Christ by faith, He supplies us with nourishment, and His body and blood are present to the eyes of faith. And it's a family meal by which we renew our pledge to one another. Faithfulness to Him, faithfulness to one another.